0: Well, good morning. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of John, so if you will turn with me to chapter 14. If, if you're with the children's ministry, there should be some workers in the back that would love to walk with the children for the rest of us. John 14, if you, if you need a Bible, raise, raise a hand. Someone will theoretically bring you a Bible. uh there's there's a lot of hard words, like hard phrases that w- that we use in the english language but for for my money well, one of the hardest phrases that I know of that sort of conjure up a lot of hard feelings, emotions is the phrase i 'm leaving right w- whether a friend tells you that they're leaving for college or the military, or they're leaving to go take care of some aging parents, or whatever the reason may be, some of the hardest words to hear when you really love someone and walk with someone and have a depth of friendship is the phrase, I'm leaving, or the word goodbye. We're going through the Gospel of John this winter, and we come to a Goodbye of sorts. Now, you might remember that the beginning of the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, Jesus talks to these various men, particular disciples, but he calls men and women to himself, and he says, Come. Come, and I'm going to change your life forever. Come and become a follower of me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And these men and women, they they left everything. Right? In an instant, they... They left their work. They left their comfort. They left security. They left their family. All for this promise that as they followed Jesus, Jesus would equip them and change their lives such that they would do amazingly great things for God in his kingdom. I mean, we, we sometimes kind of make fun of the disciples because they just are clueless from time to time. They're, they're like the butt of our jokes, but just put yourselves for a moment, in the disciples' shoes. They left everything. They, they sacrificed security and comfort. All as they followed Jesus. And so, they, they followed Jesus, lived like nomadic lives, and as the societal kind of heat is turned up, as it got harder and harder to follow Jesus, right? As it got really complicated to follow Jesus, all of a sudden, Jesus turns to them and says, Peace, I'm out. Can you just imagine how hard that must have been for the disciples? You get a sense in the end of chapter 13 of the desperation. Peter, when Jesus says, I- I'm leaving, Peter's like, great, I'm packing my bags, I'm coming with you. I don't care where you go, the Arctic or the desert, I'm coming with you. Right? We-, we we get a sense of that when, when people are like, oh, I'm-, I'm leaving or I gotta go. sometimes, our inner clinger comes out. And here's Peter just clinging to Jesus, saying, No, we can't make it without you. Wherever you go, I'm going. But Jesus says at the end of chapter 13, where I'm going, you can't go. Well, we all know that feeling, don't we? That feeling when someone says, Goodbye, I'm leaving, it's hard. It's heartbreaking. There's comfort that is necessary in the midst of the phrase, goodbye, or I'm leaving. Chapter 14 is framed with the comfort that Jesus offers to troubled hearts at the experience or the realization that he's leaving. In verse 1 and then in verse 27, we get this phrase that comes up that Jesus is saying, don't let your heart be troubled. He knows that they're troubled. He he knows that his followers, the men and women who've walked with him, are terrified that he's leaving. And so, chapter 14 is bracketed with Jesus' comfort to his disciples when they realize that he is going. So, how do you comfort someone? Or, how does Jesus comfort those disciples when he says he's leaving. And in many ways, how can chapter 14 be a comfort to us in the midst of whatever trouble has come upon your heart? Uh, the, the big idea this morning, it's, it's simple. I totally forgot to give it to the people in the back, so you're going to have to just write it down and I'm just going to verbally tell it to you. But uh, the, the big idea of chapter 14 is simply this. Future and present comfort comes through Jesus Christ. Future and present comfort comes through Jesus Christ. And we're going to kind of divide up chapter 14 in two ways. We're going to look at future comfort and then present comfort. So, first, let's look at some future comfort. Chapter 14, starting in verse 1. John writes, Let let not your heart be troubled. This is now Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. And the life. No one comes to me, to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him and have seen. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. we we'll, we'll stop there. So you're going to notice in chapter 14 that really the structure of the chapter is uh, Jesus is talking about what it means for these disciples that he's leaving, and they have inevitable questions. And so you've got a question uh, in verse uh, 5. So you, you've got Thomas asking a question, and then uh, Philip asks a question in verse 8. And then down in verse 22, that we'll get to in a moment, uh, you have Judas, which is, I love, Judas, no, not Iscariot, not, not the betrayer, another Judas, just to make it clear. He asks a question in verse 22. And really, these three questions... All of them relate to this announcement that Jesus is leaving, and they're trying to make sense of it, and they're processing their grief and their emotions and their fear at the thought that Jesus is leaving. And so in verse 2, Jesus comforts his disciples with future glory. Jesus says, like, well, Jesus says, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving like extreme house makeover. I'm going to build out God's House, God's palace for you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to prepare room for you. So it's good that I'm leaving because I'm going to the Father and I'm gonna build out God's house and I'm gonna prepare a room for you in heaven with God. So in Jesus' time, uh, culturally speaking, when people got engaged, a groom would get engaged and then he'd go back to his father's house. And or his father's land, and he'd build out the, the, the family house, or he'd build a cottage on the family property, and he'd get it all ready. And only when he built it out and got it all ready, he would go back and get his bride and bring her with him. That's what Jesus is kind of talking about here as it relates to him going. He is going like a bride, like a groom, leaving, and he's going to prepare the house, and then he's going to come back for his bride and take her with him. That's the idea here. Jesus is saying that, that though they want him to stay, oh, it's in his, it's in their best interest, it's in our best interest that he leaves because he's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to, to prepare a place to spend eternity with God the Father. You see, one of the plot tensions of the entire Bible is simply this. How can sinners, in the midst of all their sin, be in the presence of a holy God? And so there's always these sort of temporary solutions to that most fundamental problems. And so you've got the tabernacle and you've got various ways in which God's presence fully and truly dwelt. And you had the high priest who could be in God's presence, but only after going through various rituals, only once a year, only temporary. And so kind of the Old Testament ends with this fundamental question being unresolved, which is how can sinners be in the presence of God? And here, Jesus is saying, I am going to the Father, and when, and then I'm coming back for you, and I'm going to bring you, and you will be fully and finally in the presence of God forever. The, the last book of, of, uh, in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, chapter 22 of Revelation, it's this whole idea of being with God face to face in God's presence forever. Now, like all disciples, they've got their questions, right? This sort of doesn't make sense. And so Thomas asks his question. He's like, well, that's great. You say you're going to prepare a place for us, and you say that, that, that you're going to bring us home, but we have no idea where you're going, so we have no idea how to get there. Verse five, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So, so imagine if I said, Hey, get in the car with me. I tossed you my keys and I said, drive. Your question would inevitably be this. Well, where are we going? I don't know where to drive. You got to tell me the destination before I just start driving. That's what Thomas is asking. He's saying, okay, I'm, I don't understand where you're going. So how do I get there? It's a sincere question. It's a great question, and so Jesus, in light of that, says his sixth out of his seventh I am statement, and he says, okay, you're confused at where we're going, and you're confused at how to get there. Jesus says, well, as it relates to this destination, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So if you want to get to God, if you want to be in God's presence and you're like, well, how do I get to God? How do I get to be in God's presence? The answer that Jesus gives, and the answer isn't going to shock you, it's Jesus. So, so, so to the, the, the sort of question, how, how can we be with God forever? How, how can we reside in his presence? The answer is Jesus Christ. He is the way to God. He is the way and the truth. And so, this sort of, this, this is how I kind of mentally put it together. It's this. If the destination is God, with God, forever, in heaven, Jesus is the ticket. Jesus is the way we get there. Jesus, as it were, gets us to God. And so all throughout chapter 14, there's going to be this play where Jesus is like, the Father and I are so close, we're so inextricably connected that to see the Father, to see the Son, is to see the Father. And so if you want to be with the Father, you can be with the Father through the Son. Now, I think fundamentally you say, okay, great, but, 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 if Jesus is the way to God, how, how do we, like, get in the car with Jesus? Like, how, How can we make sure that we're on the destination to God with Jesus? And verse 1 makes it really, really clear. Verse 1 makes it clear how we actually get to God through Jesus. You see it there, verse 1? Believe in God. Believe also in me. So belief. Belief is putting your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, relying on him to do what none of us can accomplish by ourselves. Jesus is the way. He is the ticket to heaven. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. So this really is the offer of the gospel that that he's putting before all these disciples and thereby it's put before us. Which is simply this, that if you want to understand not just who God is, if you want to have a relationship with God and you want to see God and be in his presence forever, that only is accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the means by which you can see God. And that's why he's going away. He's going away because he's going to die as, as a substitute for our sin. He's going to take our sin and then rise from the grave three days later and then ascend into the heaven and sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's going to do that so that as we put our trust and faith in Jesus, we get his righteousness because Jesus took our unrighteousness. This is the gospel. If you haven't put your trust and faith in this message, in this person, Jesus Christ, I just encourage you to do that even this morning. Or if you want to have A conversation, or if you'd want to know more about what that would look like for your life, just come find me. Come, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. Now, that's not the only encouragement that this future comfort is providing, because many of us here in this room, I know of your stories, I know your testimony, and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So where is the comfort for you? Because all of us, from time to time, have troubled hearts. We have hardships. Trials. So how can we be comforted in the midst of this future glory? Or let me put it this way. How does heaven comfort us right now? I think there's been a tendency, maybe over the past 30 or 40 years, to say the church talks too much about heaven. They just have that pie in the sky. I don't think we talk or think enough about heaven. Because there's a principle here, which is simply this, that as we think about heaven, as we think about the future glory of heaven, you, we can, as we think about it, it will help us in the present. So, by way of an illustration, um, I've been having tension with someone in our church office. Um, a, a lot of tension. And uh, a lot of conflict. Uh, my, my, I've had to repent of my, the sin of impatience and... Uh, lots and lots of sin because of this relationship with something in the office, and it has to do with our church office printer. Um, I hate this printer. Um, it randomly kicks me off its server. Um, I'm, I'll be printing my, my sermon, and then all of a sudden it's like blotched with ink. I'm pretty sure this printer has a demon inside of it. It like hates me. Like, Phil, like, has this great relationship with it. I hate this thing. And so I've been frustrated. I've been working. I, I like, spend all this time. I feel like an idiot all the time because I can't figure out this printer. And then just talking with Ben and Phil, and this this thing is, like, like 15 years old or something. It, it's, like, old. Um, it, like, needs to die. It, it is slowly dying. and needs to die. And so I was talking with Phil and Ben, and finally Ben figured out this workaround where we can get a new printer, and it's, like, cheaper for the church. All right? And, like, multiple times a day, I'll be like, Ben, when is that printer coming? All right? All right. And he's like, in two weeks. And it's coming. And so every time I, I hit print and I just kind of like, go, oh, please, God, print. Right? Like, I know that in two weeks, the printer's coming. And it's helpful, all right? Like, looking to the future, and that future glorious printer that's going to be great, Right? I'm excited to name that printer, have a long-term relationship with that printer. Well, that future goodness and glory is helpful in the present. And that is what we have here in this text. That as you meditate on heaven, where there's going to be no sin or sorrow or pain, as you think about that, that, that home, that palace, where you get to be with God forever, when you get to be swept away in a love story that's greater than any love story that any of us have ever experienced. As we meditate on heaven and on the the, the center person of heaven, which is God himself, and all the glorious goodness of what this is going to mean, as you just sit in the wonder of heaven, it's helpful in the present, is it not? It reminds us that we can persevere. So my encouragement to you is is look to heaven, think about heaven, meditate on the glorious goodness of heaven. That future comfort will be helpful in the midst of present hardship. Uh, I think this is why, and almost every pastor I know, like whenever a pastor is walking with a saint, or, or in some ways, uh, like people they know or people they don't know. But as you're walking with a saint, um, a Christian, on their last few days of life, maybe when they're on hospice, or in their last few hours, almost every pastor I know, they go to John 14. They go to John 14, and they whisper. Even when maybe someone can't talk, or you're not even sure if they can hear, they whisper John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. There is such comfort in the reality of that. So, let me just encourage you. I know this is heavy, but if you are with me, and I'm at the finish line in this world, and you're like, I don't know what to say to Stephen. Or you're like, I'm, I'm with my aging parents, or I'm with this friend, open your Bible to John 14 and just whisper, in my father's house are many rooms. And I promise you this, if it's me or any dear saint, and I've heard the testimony of so many of my friends as we've done this with saints, inevitably they just, in the midst of all the tears and sorrow, they smile because it's almost as if they're there. I don't think we talk enough about heaven. I don't know if we're just ashamed of it. I don't know if we're just so comfortable here that this almost feels like heaven, but heaven is going to be glorious. Don't be ashamed at meditating on her, thinking about the glorious goodness of heaven because really, as you're doing it, you're really thinking about God and about being in his presence forever. So that's the first comfort. It's the comfort of future. It's a, it's a future comfort, but there's a, a second comfort A present comfort. And we learn about what this is starting in verse 8. Or maybe better put, we find out who this is starting in verse 8. So, verse 8 to the end of the chapter. This is the longest section. But I promise you, in the Lord's kindness, I don't think it's going to be the longest point. But you never know. Verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe, in me, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the accounts of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, and keeps them he is who love he he it is who loves me and he who loves me will my beloved by my father will be, be will be loved by my father excuse me and i will love him and manifest myself to him judas not Iscariot, said to him lord how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world jesus answered him if anyone loves me he will keep my word And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let us go from here. So go back to verse 8. If you see there in verse 8, Philip now asks a question. And basically, he he doesn't want to wait until heaven to see the manifestation of God. He asks Jesus, I want to see God right now. And basically, in verse 9 through 11, Jesus says, are you that dull? Like, he's basically saying, did you not read John chapter 1? John made it clear, cl- very, very clear that when you see Jesus, you saw the Father. Jesus is the exegesis of God. He is the manifestation of God. So if you want to see or know or figure out what God looks like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the, as it were, the exegesis of God. So to see Jesus, to experience Jesus is to See and experience God. And so then after this kind of conversation, Jesus then launches in, and there is a lot that he launches into. But notice, in the midst of all of this conversation, Jesus is concerned that once he dies and is raised from the grave, when that happens, they're finally going to get it. Like, fully get it. And then that's when it, that's when the trouble is really going to come upon them. Just, just, just think about this. Right now, their trouble that he's leaving... But they still are confused about who Jesus is. When he rises from the grave, they're going to instantly go, uh, God incarnate was with us. And so if they weren't troubled now, they're going to be really troubled when he leaves them because they're going to realize in a greater way and a deeper way who it was who was walking among them, God's son. They, they know in part, but soon they're going to know fully. And so Jesus says, I'm worried that you're really going to be troubled. And so in light of that, I'm going to send you a comfort. I'm going to send you someone to help. We see that in verse 16. Look there at verse 16. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Or if you're confused, who is this helper? Well, go to verse 25. These things I've spoken to you, While I am still with you, but the Helper, who's the Helper? The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So, Jesus is leaving, but it's better that he leaves, not just because he's going to prepare a home for them, not just because their future glory in heaven with God is dependent upon him leaving, but he needs to go because in his going, he's going to send. He's going to send them the Spirit, who's called the Helper called the spirit of truth, and some translations even call him the comforter. But notice that this helper, that this helper, this, this spirit who is a person is coming not merely so that they can then follow someone. The emphasis here isn't that the spirit is coming to guide them or follow them. This spirit, this helper is coming. You see it over and over again. Verse 17, to indwell them. This is crazy. The Spirit is coming. As Jesus leaves, he is going to send the Helper to indwell his people. Now, in the Old Testament, God dwelt with with his people in many capacities. So, So you see God dwelling with his people in the garden. You see God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle. You see God dwelling with his people in the temple. Now, through Jesus, as he goes away, there's a shift. There's a change. Now, God's people are the temple where he dwells. And you might go, well, how could that be? Well, in the same way that God, God is infinite and he can't be contained in a building. Well, the same thing is true now. That there's a sense in which, how could God, God the Spirit, he is infinite, he is eternal, how could he reside in humans? Well, he does. In the same way that he dwelt in the temple and in the tabernacle, so now God the Spirit dwells in Christians. The people of God are in the new temple of God, where God resides. And just like in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple was a means for God to have a relationship with people. And now, we being the temple, we are the means by which we can have a relationship with God and be comforted by God and have a personal relationship with God. Now, what what does this look like? The best kind of illustration, you got to be careful with illustrations and analogies. You stretch them too far, you start getting into heresy. But the best way to explain what this looks like is actually to look at Jesus. So just think about Jesus. Jesus took on flesh and walked among us and took up residence in human, with humanity, right? So he, 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 he left his home in eternity and bound himself to flesh and made his home with us. Well, in the same way, that's true of us, that when Jesus leaves, now the Spirit of God enters our being and makes his home within us. And what's the Spirit going to do? As, this, as the Spirit indwells God's people, what's he going to do? That's what chapter 14 is all about. From chapter eight to the well, you're gonna keep going and uh, to almost the end of the uh, upper room discourse in chapter 17. There's this constant conversation about what this spirit is gonna do in God's people. But I can't walk through everything in chapter 14. We would be here like all day. So let me, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna punt, but I'm gonna punt to your, your small groups or your lunch conversation. I, I'm gonna in a moment list out quickly. All the different ministries of the Spirit in chapter 14, just chapter 14, there's a lot more that could be said. I'm only going to talk about one of them. I'm just going to, like, land hard on one of the ministries of the Spirit in chapter 14, how the Spirit comforts the Christian presently in his ministry within us. So, in your small group, if it meets tonight or next week, uh, over lunch, uh, that, that'd be a great conversation to have, is to, to look at what the Holy Spirit does as he indwells a Christian's life and meditate and have a discussion about the various ministries of the Spirit, okay? So I'm punting to your small groups or your lunch conversation, your dinner conversation, or whatever. But let me just list a few of them. Verse, verse 12. Verse 12 says, uh, as the Spirit indwells us, he's going to help us accomplish greater works than Jesus. Verse 13, the Spirit's going to help us in our prayer lives. Verse 15, the Spirit's going to help us to love each other. That, that the Trinitarian love between Father, Son, and Spirit is going to be a manifest that we can experience and love God in a similar way that the Father loves the Son. Verse 18, the Spirit's going to give us a new family. No longer are we going to be called orphans, but sons and daughters Of the king. Verse 19, the spirit's gonna bring life. Verse 26, the spirit will teach you and instruct you and remind you about Jesus Christ. Verse 27, the spirit's gonna give you peace. Not not like worldly peace. John makes it clear this is not a worldly peace, this is a heavenly peace that will conquer troubled souls and hearts. Verse 30, the spirit gives you a new identity. No longer are you citizens in the kingdom of darkness. The prince of darkness has no claim on you. You are claimed by Christ and sealed by the Spirit. That's chapter 14. Like, you just go through all of those sorts of things. Jesus is meditating on how this Spirit that indwells the the, the Christian, how he is going to comfort believers and work through believers as the Spirit indwells believers. But I just want to focus on one. One aspect of the Spirit's work in the Christian's life. Go to verse 12. I think it's, in some sense, the most shocking and in the, in the, 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 the ministry of the Spirit that my guess is you're like, what does that even mean? Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. That's Jesus' works. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So, he says, because I'm going to the Father... And because the Spirit indwells you, you're going to do the works that I have done, that you've seen me do, and even greater works. Now, that's crazy. But it says it, that we are going to do greater works than Jesus when he lived. In his life, in his ministry. So what in the world does that mean? Well, John tells us. You just got to read it in context. So go to, I want you to see this. Go to John 5. John 5, verse 17. John has already told us what these what this greater work is. Chapter 5, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working. That's the language of work. Greater work, working. Until now, and I am working. So he's saying, the Father is working, and I am working, and the Father's work, and the Son's work are the same. This, this link. Then go to verse 20. We find out what this Work is that the Father and Son are both doing. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works, there's the phrase, the greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So the Father's going to show the Son these greater works that he's going to do. And You might go, okay, what are these greater works? Verse 21 is the answer to the question, what are the greater works? The greater works, verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. The Father is raising people from the grave. The Son is raising people from the grave. And the greater works that John is going to talk about, that when Jesus leaves and the Spirit comes and dwells Christians, now, in a greater manifestation, Christians, indwelled by the Spirit, are going to raise people from the grave. Now, we got to be careful. But that's what it says. The greater works that we, the church, Christians, empowered by the Spirit, are going to accomplish are... Raising the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but if I walked in a graveyard and said, "Raise from the grave, nothing's going to happen. Well, we know from John that John, when he's talking about this newness of life in John 3, and other places, he's talking spiritually, right? E- even when he raises Lazarus from the grave physically, we-, we talked about how that was pointing to this great reality that Jesus is, in a far greater way, raising the dead, spiritually speaking that we're all dead in our sins and that Christ is raising us to life through his death and resurrection so that we can have life, spiritual life with God forever and we can experience that newness of life, that abundance of life even right now. So Jesus is raising from the grave and he's saying now, I am commissioning you empowered by the spirit to do the very work that Jesus was doing which was raising people from the grave spiritually. And you might think, well, how are we doing it in a greater way? Well, just think about it. The book of Acts begins, and there's about 120 people who are following Jesus. I mean, it's a pretty modest group that are following Jesus. And Peter, at the first Pentecost after the ascension of Jesus, Peter, who doesn't even speak all the languages of the people gathered, just speaks about how through Jesus Christ, you can be raised from the grave spiritually as you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Peter, who gives a sermon, and it probably wasn't the greatest sermon because it's Peter, right? It doesn't matter. 3,000 are converted at Pentecost as he preached that gospel and are raised spiritually from the grave. I mean, you just keep reading the book of Acts. Or you just get to uh, uh, the book of Revelation, and there's this talk that in heaven there is an incalculable number from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are collected into the family of God, who are spiritually reborn. And the answer is, how? Because Jesus left. And he sent the Spirit. And the Spirit indwelt a Christian. And the Christian now testifies to who Jesus is. And the Spirit delights to open the eyes of the blind and bring in a harvest of men and women to put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. That's the greater works. The greater works are nothing short of our commission, our mission, our privilege, our purpose on this earth, which is to make disciples by preaching the gospel and calling men and women to submit their lives to the lordship of Christ. That's the greater work. For 2,000 years, largely speaking, the church has been about this work. Proclaiming, teaching, discipling the nations about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and calling them to repentance and faith in the message of the gospel. The disciples, early on in their life, are fishermen. And Jesus says, follow me. And instantly they're like, this is going to be great. Like... Like, they're kind of nobodies, and Jesus is a somebody. Great. But he doesn't just say that. He says, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to do great things through you. And all along, they've been listening and being discipled by Jesus and growing in their understanding of of this gospel message, and they've been studying God's word with Jesus and all these sorts of things, watching him do miracles and and interact with people, and they ask their questions. They've been in this like school of discipleship all along, but in the back of their mind, they're like, w- 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 how am I going to accomplish this work? This work of making disciples, this work of being a fishers of men. How am I going to do this? Especially when Jesus leaves. How am I going to accomplish the works to which Jesus said that I'm called, or that these disciples are called, or that the church is called to? How do we accomplish this work. And so you can just imagine the panic. The panic of saying, we can't accomplish what Jesus said we should be doing. And that's why Jesus attaches two things to this greater works. He says, he goes, greater works are you going to accomplish? He says, because I'm going away. Because I'm going to the Father. And then he talks about prayer. We as a church, just like all churches, Are called to this greater work ministry, which is nothing short of preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, discipling the nations about who Jesus is, and calling for a response. Calling for a response, like Jesus said, to, to get in the car, that Jesus is the way, he's the only way to the Father, and to put your faith and belief in Jesus Christ for your salvation. That is our calling, it's our work, but we do not do that because we're smarter than everyone. We, we, we don't call the nations because we, we, we want our culture to dominate every culture. We, we don't do any of that kind of stuff. It's always from a position of humility that we preach this gospel. It's why we pray. It's why he says, ask. Ask for the nations. Ask for this great harvest. Ask for this greater work. And I'm going to answer it. No, no, not, not to suggest that every... Pray, prayer that you pray for every non-Christian friend you have, God must answer. No, no, no. But it is saying that if you ask according to God's will in Jesus' name particularly connected to advancing the kingdom of God God is delighted to answer them. And so that's our job. I'm just thinking encourage you. This is why I just want to land on this. This really is our job. It's why you are here. It's why you're on this earth. It's why, even though you've got lots of jobs and responsibilities, this is the primary identity and purpose of the Christian, which is to do nothing short of testify to who Jesus is. And when you do, it's not like, well, I just have to outsmart my non-Christian neighbor. Because they're Mormon and they've got they've got all their answers, so I'm just gonna try to outsmart them and then I win. No, it's the spirit work within us who testifies to who Jesus is. That's the comfort of evangelism. The comfort of evangelism isn't it. It all it's gonna get easier the older you get. No, it never gets easier. It's always awkward. You could always lose lose a friendship, or it could always get awkward. It probably always will get awkward. The comfort is that the Spirit indwelling you will testify. It's his work, ultimately. Our job is just to testify, to just use words in order to talk about who Jesus is. And when we do, the Spirit loves to shine a beacon of hope and light on Jesus Christ and draw men and women from all nations to himself. So my, my guess is some of you are discouraged um, discouraged maybe by relationships that you've tried to point them to Jesus and there just isn't a response. Some of you are parents and you're discouraged about your children and where they're at in their faith journey. Or some of us are discouraged, you know, like how's God going to build the chapel church? We're outnumbered. We're in the Northwest. Like we're outflanked, outnumbered. We're, we're in trouble. Well, our hope, Our comfort is the same comfort that Jesus gives to the disciples. Don't trust in yourselves. Trust in in God himself who's going to indwell Christians and testify to these things. Your job isn't to save people. Your job is just to point them to Jesus and see God draw them to the Son. So, I know it's difficult when we hear things like, "I'm, I'm leaving I know it's difficult when we hear things like, I, um, I got to go. I know it's difficult when we lose friendships to distance. All that is difficult. But here's the interesting thing is, sometimes, and we know this with like some friends, like my small group there is going to come a point where I want to hear, I'm leaving. I want them out of my house. That's good for my family. It's good for my sleep. Leave my house, Right? Well, you know, far greater way, it's really good that Jesus left. Our comfort, our salvation, our redemption, and our mission hinges upon Jesus leaving. The disciples didn't get it. But I think in hindsight, we do. Jesus left to comfort us. To comfort us for future glory that he has gone to prepare a place. And then secondarily, to comfort us and to remind us that everything we need for life and godliness, he has given to us. He's given us the spirit. We are the temple of God, where God dwells. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we, we, we acknowledge that we need you. We acknowledge that we probably don't want you as much as we ought to want you. And yet we we bank on your grace and your mercy and your love. And so Lord, we, we pray, Lord, in this season, in this day, in this region, that you would see fit to, as as we and other churches continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray, Lord, knowing that that this is above our pay grade, but we pray, Lord that you would draw men and women to yourself. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that in our lifetime for your glory and the good of this region. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.